0: And if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. text tonight will be verses 35 through 45. Mark 10, 35 through 45. Let us hear the Word of God. And James and John the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, Teacher... We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drank, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or to sit at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when, they, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you um, for, first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This ends the reading of the Word of God. I've titled tonight's message, Greatness in service, not status. And the main idea that I want us to take away from this evening, as we would consider this passage here in Mark, is that Jesus calls upon his followers to pursue greatness in their service to one another, not in their status over one another. As disciples, we are to pursue humble service, counting others more significant than ourselves. This is the way of Christ. This is the way of all of Christ's followers. And so what's going on here as we would consider this passage? Well, they're on the road to Jerusalem. This is the second of three discourses or dialogues that Mark would string together here. Last Sunday morning, we considered the first one where Jesus foretells his death and resurrection for a third time. It is the most vivid of, of his foretellings or his predictions as he gives the greatest of details. He is to suffer. He is to be flogged. He is to be killed. He is to be spit upon. He's to rise again. And coming second now, here is is the next dialogue that Mark wants us to consider. And what we see here that's being shown to us is the problem of pride. The problem of pride and the place of humility within the Christian community. I want to call your attention here first to verses 35 through 41. And what we, are, what we see are prideful minds in James and John. It is interesting when we look at verse 35 and we start with these two names, what is omitted? Who is omitted? Peter. Where's Peter in this one? Peter's been the one who's done great things and bad things. I think he's happy to not be in this account. So we have James and John, not Peter, the sons of Zebedee. Who are these? Let me just remind you who these brothers are, and they are brothers. Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder. That's a fantastic nickname. In chapter 3, verse 17, well, why do they have this name? Well, it's believed. It's because of their, their fiery personalities, their zeal for Christ, their zeal for the gospel. When Jesus initially calls these two, they're on the boat. They're in the fishing business, and they're on the boat with their father, Zebedee. And Jesus says, come, follow me. And they're not saying, "Mm, let me get when I clock out. No, they literally jump off the boat, leave their dad behind, and go after Christ. These are intense men. James is the oldest. That's why his name is always First. John is the youngest, but not just the younger brother. He's the youngest of all the disciples. At this time, he is not more than a teenager. What do we know about John? He would go on to author five books of the New Testament. There are only four men in the history of all humanity that were called upon to author a gospel. And John's one of them. So he's the author of the Gospel of John. He's the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he is also the author of the book of Revelation. Revelation. He's referred to as he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved or the disciple whom Jesus loved. So these are the two characters that we have before us, and they are quite characters, as we would see. And they come up to Christ and they make this foolish request, looking at verse 35. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. This is scandalous what happens here. They sound like actually little children. Oftentimes the children will say, Hey, mom and dad, say yes. And then they make a request. So, hey, we don't sign blank checks in this home. What do you mean, say yes? But that's what they're asking. And they're basically saying, Jesus, say yes. We want you to say yes to whatever we ask of you. But it is interesting. Jesus says, okay, I'll walk down this road with you what do you want me to do for you? Imagine being in that situation. You have the divine Son of God looking at you, and He's asking you the greatest question you could ever be asked. What do you want me to do for you? How would we respond? Well, what we, what we see is their hearts or their prideful minds revealed here. It's interesting, and again, the The next time that we will consider the next passage, in verse 51, Jesus asks the same question to blind Bartimaeus, and Bartimaeus answers correctly. These brothers do not at this time. And so the question is asked, the greatest question that they could be faced, what do you want me to do for you? And their answer reveals their prideful minds. Let me call your attention to verse 37 here and what we would notice of john and james and john first and foremost is that they had a desire for prominence a desire for prominence how do they respond to this question it wasn't like solomon grant me wisdom it wasn't like blind bartimaeus give me eyes to see no they're saying give me glory give me prominence give us position give us power grant us One to sit at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus, we know that there's a throne for you. We know that you're the king. We just want to be 1A and 1B in the kingdom. We know that the throne is for you, but can we get the lesser ones to the side? Can we be at your right hand and at your left? It is the pride of prominence. They desire position and rank. They wanted to be out in front. They're tired of it being Peter. James and John, you see, Peter's always the one who's showing up. He's always the spokesperson. He's the one who's got the, he's, well, he's been called Satan by Christ, but he's also been blessed by Christ. And they're thinking, we too belong to the inner circle. They are the inner circle of the three, Peter, James, and John. We too were on that mountain and beheld your glory. We too jumped out of the boat and left the fishing business behind. We too see we have given up everything to follow you, Jesus. In their request, and, they, and the way they answer Christ's question, we see they wanted glory. They wanted fame. They wanted recognition. They wanted the front row seats. This is sin. This isn't just misguided or, or, or reorienting. Of, this is sin coming from James and John. It is a desire for power, position, and prominence. And what we can notice here is that any time a desire of, for pro, uh, power, or position, or prominence is driving a person, if, that, if the pride is fueling the tank, it is not of God. No, it is of selfish ambition. This is important to understand here, and especially for the original listeners in Rome who heard this for the first time, and for us too. This is a giant red flag that we should see here in this text. If somebody is jockeying for position or prominence in the church, that's a red flag. Were James and John gifted? Extremely. Extremely gifted. But they needed more time in the school of Christ. They needed more time with the master to shape their minds and to build their character. Whereas their giftedness giftedness is here, but their character must come and rise up as well. So the first issue we see with these two brothers is a desire for prominence, which leads to a second one, a distorted reality. Verses 38 through 40. Jesus said to them, look again at your text, verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What is Jesus talking about here? He's referencing right back to the previous section. What he has just told them is about to happen. This cup that he's to drink and this baptism in which he's to undergo, it is his suffering. It is his trial. It is, it is his passion and his subsequent death that he is going to, going to undergo here. He say, like, do you not remember what I just told you? He looks at these guys and says, you don't know what you're talking about. In your your desire for and your pride, it's clouding your judgment. You are living literally in a distorted reality, James and John. You don't have a clue. Do you not remember what I told you for the third time? What will happen to me? How do they respond? Verse 39, we are able. We are able, Jesus. Listen, nobody's able unless God enables them. They're arrogant. They're resting in their own strength, their own perceived abilities. See, notice here, their pride is clouding their thinking. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, as he's about to talk about gifts, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Were James and John acting in sober judgment? No. Bartimaeus in the next section is. He's the rebuke to James and John. So I want us to notice here in their pride, and we can make direct application to our own lives, pride distorts reality. It can distort one's view of reality, an overestimation of one's abilities. That happens all the time. Think about sports athletes, former athletes, well past their prime. They think they still got it. Then they don't. But you can't tell them that because while the body is this age, the mind is here. Here. There seems to be a disconnect. They say it's for the love of the game, so they keep going. It's the love of competition. Sure, they need that. They like the camaraderie. They like the competition. But it's their pride, oftentimes, that does not allow them to see themselves as they are instead of what they think they are. This is the issue here with James and John. They think they're more than they are. They're resting in their own abilities. They want to be out in front. Their desire for first place they overestimated their abilities. It is their arrogance here that would cause them to say, we are able. Jesus responds to them after this statement. Let me just summarize verse 39. He looks at him and says, you will face a similar fate. You will drink a cup. You will undergo this baptism. You will suffer. You will die as a martyr. It's not going to be an easy road for you. What happens? James in Acts chapter 12 verse 3, he's the first apostle to die. He's killed by the sword of Herod. He loses his head. What about John? Well, John's the last one to die. John is the only apostle who is not martyred. John was, they tried to kill him so many times and he just couldn't be killed. They literally arrest him in Ephesus, according to the church fathers, and they take boiling hot oil, and they drop him in boiling hot oil, and he survives. And he comes up out of the scarred and raw flesh, a hideous sight for all to see. Read some of the early church fathers. John was not a very good-looking man after this. And so then, he, then after he is dropped in the hot oil, He's exiled to Patmos. And they say, this is where he, surely he's going to die. So he's out to do slave labor on Patmos. And instead, even in, his, even in his scarred bodily condition, he doesn't die on Patmos. No, he gets the revelation. He writes the letter to the seven churches. He completes the canon of Scripture in his exile. He's, he returns out of exile. They couldn't kill him. They tried to burn him. They tried to exile him. He returns to Turkey. He dies of natural causes, fulfilling the promise that, was made to Christ, that Christ made with him to take care of Mary all the days of her life while he was on the cross. And so at the end of the first century, the apostle John dies. But he and James drank the cup and underwent the baptism in, in reference to suffering for the sake of Christ. But Jesus makes it clear here it is not him that he's going to give to give them position and prominence that they seek. They're asking the wrong for the wrong thing. Their hearts, their minds are not in the right place. And this is the this is the corrective teaching that Jesus will give here. And this is the point. Rank and order in the kingdom is not granted by request but is recognized through service. That's what Jesus wants them to see. And wants, again, Mark for us to see as well as the readers here. So what, were the, what was the result? What was the result of these prideful minds in James and John? Verse 41. It was a divided team. Oh, pride is destructive. Self-promotion, self-deception, a desire to be number one is poison to a team. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. What's happening here? Well, James and John have now isolated themselves, pulled themselves out, elevated themselves in their own minds against the other ten. And now we have a rift. These are to be the master's men. These are to be the twelve that turn the world upside down. And now we've got ten and two. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Ten are angry with them, and rightly so. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you what you already know. Pride is dangerous to any team, to any organization, especially when it's about self-exaltation, especially those that are called to lead in churches in various capacities. Self-promotion, desire for prominence, Being first, overestimating one's abilities, are all recipes for disaster and division. Nothing positive comes from this type of thinking. To kill a church, appoint prideful people that are fueled by recognition. They will find their identity in their position, and so begins the steady decline to extinction. Giftedness must never outshine character. So, were James and John very gifted? Yes, and in time it was to be channeled and used. But that character needed to be built in them. We see it here. So, Jesus says to them basically this Friends, this is not the way of the kingdom, this is not the way of the church. This is not the way of my disciples. And so this first section here, verses 35 through 41, show us prideful minds. And here comes the shift. The shift happens in verse 42, where Jesus says, let me explain to you a more excellent way. It is through humble hearts, not prideful minds. Look at verse 42. And Jesus called them, to him. Let's pause there before we even consider what he says. Jesus called them all to him. What does Jesus do with proud, arrogant disciples, knuckleheads, who don't seem to get it? He instructs them. He teaches them. He does not respond in kind, but in humility. He corrects them. The tendency is to want to just dismiss pride and arrogance and say, okay, let's just find someone humble. You guys aren't cutting it. We're done with you. On to the next. Say, they're unqualified. Yeah. But do you not understand that we are all unqualified? Jesus does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And so they need to sit in the school of Christ and they need to learn from Him. I think there's just a, a lesson that we all could take from here. Be patient with proud people. It's hard sometimes. Pride stinks, Arrogate, ar, arrogant attitudes are putrid. Nobody really wants to be around that, but let's be patient. Let's bear with the failings of the weak. Because at one time you were that person, I was that person, and maybe I still am. And I need patient, and we need patient people that come alongside us and don't see where we are, but where we are going to be, as we are growing in Christ's likeness. Or works in progress. We all deal with the failings of the weak. And so Jesus says to him in verse 42, as he calls them to him, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over him. He's saying, listen, this is the way of the world. And the disciples of the kingdom are not to be modeling their leadership and, and their, their drive after what they see in the world. We are to be against the example of the world. You are not to pursue power and authority as Gentiles do. Christians, especially those in authority, are not to be authoritarians in their dealings. What is he saying here? Do not demand complete obedience. Do not set yourself up in a structure that funnels all power to the top. It's not about who's sitting on the right hand or the left hand in glory. This is the system of the world. This is the example of the world. Greatness is not in power. It is not in power in how much authority one has or possesses. That is not the measurement of greatness according to Jesus. This is it. Here's the main point. It is greatness in service, not in status. Verse 43, but whoever would be great among you must be a servant. Let me just read that one more time. Whoever would be great among you must be be your servant. Must be. Literally, what he's saying here is wait tables, servant, diaconos, to which we get the, the the title of deacon. He's saying, Deacon, serve people, serve others. The world says greatness comes in ruling. Jesus says greatness comes in serving. Practically, what does this look like? No task too small no job to beneath anyone what's our attitude greatness in service whether that be watching children in a nursery picking up after a fellowship running a vacuum preaching a sermon working a soundboard making sure there's batteries in the microphone I mean, it's all a part of one whole thing. It's greatness and service. And nobody says, I'm the one who puts the batteries in the microphone. Because they're not looking to themselves. It's not about recognition. It's not about position. It's not about calling on people to see what we do. It's humbly just serving Christ, which is manifest through serving people. And you don't even think you're serving. You see a need you meet the need, and if you can't meet the need, you just direct someone that can meet the need. Say, "Hey, let's do this together. It's greatness in service. Outdo one another in showing honor. If there's any competition, it should be for godliness. in a humble way. Humble competition. Greatness is achieved when it is not pursued. What does he say here? He references slaves and servants. Who are they? They're the humble and lowly. They're not trying to get theirs. It's not about them. No. Servants aim to please their masters. Slaves are owned by someone. They do what they do not for themselves but for others. Humble hearts are others oriented. What was James and John's request? Grant us to sit here. Give us the position. And Jesus says, man, when you, you need to get the eyes off of yourself. And out to others. This is the way of greatness in the kingdom. As we are servants of Christ, we do so simply because we love Christ and our hearts are filled with thankfulness. This is why we preach the gospel to ourselves often. You lose sight of the gospel, your service becomes a duty. It goes, it once was a delight, now it's a duty, then it's drudgery, and then you just say, I don't want to do this anymore. On to the next thing. And you think you've just been called to another ministry. Maybe you've been called to go back to the gospel. And behold Christ in his suffering. Behold your Savior. The beauty of humility is that it's invisible to ourselves. But it's apparent to others. None of us have humility charts where we are tracking our growth. If you do, we can talk later. But it's about, it's about others, not the example of the world. The world says to get ahead, you must be cutthroat. Long hours. You've got to kill the competition. Christians say, hey, build everyone up around you. You want a healthy church? You want to make an impact for the kingdom. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And this is what Jesus tells us here. In verse 44 and 45, after the example of Christ. Whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Humble hearts, kingdom servants, the great ones are against the example of the world, and they follow after the example of Christ friends, Jesus must ever be before us. The example of Christ is what we follow. We don't follow an ethic. We don't follow a system. We don't follow uh, simply creeds and confessions. We follow a person. We follow Jesus. And, what, and again, Jesus never calls us to go where he has not already been. And so he has laid the path before us. And he even says it here, for even the Son of Man, in all of his glory... Here, the Son of Man, the one who stands before the Ancient of Days, the one who who holds all power and authority that has been granted to him, eternal God, very God of very God. He says, even the Son of Man, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's as though Jesus is saying, I, even me, the Son of God, Son of man, the divine one, did not step out of heaven to be waited on, to be served to be ministered to, but instead, I came to wait on people, to serve people, to minister to others. So what does a humble life look like? Where is selflessness magnified? In the Gospels, in the life of Jesus. And then he tells us how. He says and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a this is a pregnant statement here. To give his life as a ransom for many. Now I want us to notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say to give his afternoons for many or his nights or his weekends. No, Jesus is saying that in his service, it's all of life. It's all of his capacity that he was willing to give. And that's how we must orient our lives as believers. Yes, there are times where we, we must rest and recharge and do all those types of things. But it is, even in those things, it is a service. As we are, as we are caring for ourselves, we are better to care for others. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. This wasn't a part-time thing for him. Neither is being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Neither is being a servant. Neither is pursuing the greatness in our service. It's not part-time. Christians are full-time. From the, day, from the moment I wake up till the moment I go to sleep, and it's not because I'm a pastor, it's because I'm a Christian. I wear the lens. My worldview tells me I must serve. I get to serve. I've been called. You've been called to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. Don't ever settle for anything less. And so Jesus here demonstrates the ultimate example of a humble heart. And Paul says it best in summary form. Christ Jesus humbling himself, obedient to the point of death. And to whom did he give his life to, we see here, Jesus says, is a ransom for many. Jesus goes and dies on the cross, demonstrating the greatness of service in offering himself up to the Father to pay the debt of sin occurred for many. Who are the many? Those who will come to Christ by faith. Those who are trusting and will trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ. This is what's prophesied at his birth. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Who are his people? The many for whom Christ died, you see, that he gave his life for. And what is Jesus here by using himself as the reference in verse 45? What is Jesus calling James and John the ten and the many in this room to do. He's saying, follow me. Follow me. I don't have to ask for a seat in heaven. That throne is already granted, Jesus is saying here. I have the throne, and I came off of that for you. I stepped down from glory. Follow me. Don't worry about your position or your rank. Greatness in service, not in status. Peter, who heard this, who is an eyewitness at this account, says these words, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. So, what should we make of this account? Let me just give some application here. As we think about pride and humility, they're always at odds with one another. When we think about pride, and we think about James and John, the example that they showed us here, proud people tend to not work well with others. You see, James and John isolated themselves from the team. Proud people exalt themselves in their minds and their actions. Proud people are looking out to their own interests and not the interest of others? How a conversation with someone, how often does it, do they speak about themselves? Understand this, pride causes division. Spend any time in the church. Spend any time in ministry, and you can pinpoint it. Why do divisions happen? Why do people it, tend to move into disunity? It's pride. So often it's pride. The inability to listen to one another, it's pride. Insisting that one is right and someone else is wrong, it's pride. The inability to reconcile is pride because it takes humility. And many people would like to serve humble pie but not eat it. Humble people join in with others, humble people look to empower others through serving. Humility says, I want what's best for you. How can I build you up, brother? How can I empower you in your service for the kingdom? How can I lean into making and helping you to to excel in greatness, in service? Humble people are not aware of their humility, but they're sure to recognize it in others. Humble people do not need or desire the recognition or the position They just want to serve. And maybe they're not even thinking that way. There's a need. I'm meeting a need. We're just all unprofitable servants. Humility brings unity. Humility is like glue that binds so much together. Corporately, by way of application, a healthy church is marked by humble servants who are serious about following the example of Jesus and not following themselves. This is what Paul says to strengthen the unity of the Philippian church. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Notice the unity here. Of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. How do we maintain that? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. The healthy church is a humble church, which is a unified church. So, as we think about these two things even tonight, Let's ask the question, where are we? And certainly, we probably oftentimes go back and forth between prideful minds and humble hearts, and we're fighting that tension within us. It's not about becoming and trying to be more humble. It's about looking to Jesus. You know what's great about humble service in the church? It's contagious. It's rewarding, and it's a rewarding act of love towards God and towards neighbor. So we can learn from James and John. And they do eventually get it after they sat longer in the school of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the lessons of your word. Lord, we know, oh, in and of ourselves there are no good thing, but the renewing work of your spirit within us, empowering us to selfless service. Lord, we pray that this would be ever increasing in our lives. Lord, as we are looking out to the interest of others, We are putting ourself on the shelf, as it were, and not wanting to exalt our own place of prominence or position, but that in humility, we love you and we want to seek to serve and meet the needs around us for the glory of Christ and the good of his church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.